the president, you could be argued, since he needed oxygen, was akin to someone that might be in the hospital. So we don't really have information about that antibody product used. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the October 14th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are discuss current status of vaccine development and discuss indication for dexamethasone in treatment of COVID-19. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be dedicating this entire podcast solely to answering learner questions. Dr. Allwater, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And I understand we have uh, some questions for this week. Yes, we do. Our first question is, is there any news on the possibility of a one-dose versus a two-dose vaccine? Yeah, so this question I think is a very perceptive one because it speaks to a lot of issues that have to deal with potential logistical issues with the COVID-19 immunization uh, programs that would develop once there's either emergency or FDA approval of vaccines. One dose is obviously very appealing if it engenders immunity within a month or six weeks after one shot it obviously is less burden. Two doses, which certainly a number of vaccines, in fact, the vast majority are uh, using this approach means that you're not only uh, encumbering the medical system two times, but that you're lengthening really till the third month or longer after the first immunization to get a really robust immune response that might be able to impact transmission. So what we know about one-dose vaccines at the moment are there's really two. They're both adenovirus vaccines. These are common um, viruses that uh, produce the common cold uh, symptoms, for example, occasionally more severe disease. But they've been attenuated. And uh, one was Oxford AstraZeneca that uses a chimpanzee adenovirus vaccine. And this is appealing because people haven't uh, seen chimpanzee adenovirus. And it doesn't really create a terribly productive infection. 
you also don't have any immunity to it. This vaccine was on hold briefly for a vaccine recipient that got a, a neurological disease, but is now proceeding again. The other vaccine is the Johnson & Johnson uh, adenovirus 26 vaccine that also uses a spike protein component to try to uh, develop immune responses. And uh, just uh, this past week, that trial has been placed on hold also for a safety issue of which we don't have much news at the moment. I think these are possibilities. Any of the adenovirus vaccines, though, were really crafted as one-dose vaccines, in part because the more times you give this vaccine, the more likely that you develop immunity, not only to the spike protein of the coronavirus, but to the adenovirus vector that's being delivered. And then that would be the possibility that the human body would uh, concentrate on the adenovirus part and not on the spike protein part of the coronavirus. So a rather long answer uh, to say that there may be attributes, but it's also perhaps a one-shot deal, uh, literally, that uh, there wouldn't really be a mechanism for uh, follow-up boosters or anything that's really built in, and its immunity may wane, and then you're still left with the need for another vaccine. So there's certainly advantages to the one-shot possibility, but uh, many unanswered questions uh, with the durability of these vaccines, of course, which really have been subjected to study. We're still waiting for the phase three efficacy and therefore safety data. Okay, thank you. And our next question, are the rapid antigen tests relatively inaccurate? What role should they play in screening? Rapid diagnostic tests, uh, at least if they're protein-based, that's the antigen tests, have been approved by the FDA under emergency use authorization. These work very much like your drugstore pregnancy tests. They're trying to detect a protein from the coronavirus and give you a positive result. The issues are that these tests are inexpensive to produce. And uh, some people have said, well, you know, even if they're not accurate and they are less sensitive, they're going to have more false negatives than uh, standard molecular testing like PCR. But that if you do the tests, you know, multiple times, that it could be a way to pick up more people and, and uh, provide some safety. Now, the rapid tests, uh, you may remember, were used in a number of sports situations, but still, for example, in the Florida Marlins, they got affected with the coronavirus. Here's the deal with the rapid antigen tests. They are only supposed to be used on symptomatic people, and that's because they can really only detect high levels of virus. That you need a lot of the protein to trigger a positive test. So the FDA actually only approved them in early symptomatic illness under seven days. So they are not to be used for screening. And this is where uh, they're going to be even more unreliable than they might be uh, when people are symptomatic. So the holy grail is a fast, cheap, accurate test. Unfortunately, you can get fast and cheap, but you don't get accurate. It's very hard to get all three. So the gold standards are not fast, uh, but they are accurate and they are relatively more expensive. So, you know, it's very hard to get all three of those. And for the moment, 
I'd have to say that molecular testing remains really the only one that I would use, except in very limited circumstances. And the rapid antigen tests are really only supposed to be used when you really need to know an answer very quickly. Um, and that's usually more in hospital settings or other settings, or uh, it's also been useful when people live in congregate living situations, such as group homes, where you do need some testing quickly to help avoid an outbreak. Okay, thank you. And our next question is, often a COVID-19 patient can demonstrate improvement before experiencing a worsening of symptoms. Do we have a general timeline for when an improving patient could be considered, quote unquote, out of the woods? What we sort of know about this is that on average, if someone is exposed and acquires the coronavirus, they usually develop symptoms five to six days after exposure. Once you develop symptoms, the really difficult time that we worry about is five to 10 days after onset of their symptoms. And that's usually where we'll see the so-called hyperinflammatory responses if people were to suffer those that could land people in the intensive care unit or on a mechanical ventilator and so on. Occasionally it can be a little longer out. Traditionally we know from early studies out of China that have followed people with regular CAT scans, by day 14 after onset of symptoms, you begin to see some regression in the non-critically ill of the infiltrates or the lung findings on CAT scan. So if you're not critically ill by day 10 to 14, you're probably not going to develop critical illness because at that point we know immune systems have kicked in, uh, antibodies and T cells are being made to help clear the virus. And if you really haven't sort of fallen off the edge, you're, you're not likely to do so. There is one caveat, Faith, that I would point out. Much like influenza, but to a far greater frequency, COVID-19 is a bit of an odd virus that causes some level of immunosuppression. And people can get, just like in flu, a secondary infection with bacteria or increasingly worrisome are molds like aspergillus. And it's exactly what we see in influenza when people get a MRSA pneumonia or a pneumococcal pneumonia. So although that's maybe 10 to 20% of patients that are hospitalized, and indeed those numbers are really very soft because we don't have great longitudinal data, there's always the potential for someone to get a secondary infection that would then uh, cause severe illness. Okay, thank you for that. Our next learner says, I am a school nurse and have concerns about students with simple common cold symptoms being asked to stay home until the symptoms resolve. When I think about how many students in an elementary school have a runny nose or mild cough or occasional sneeze, I feel like half the students will be asked to stay home and we may as well just stay virtual. Any advice or comment to this thought? Yeah, I think this question really uh, gets at a number of issues, especially with elementary and secondary schools. We know from influenza that children end up transmitting vast amounts of influenza to adults and senior citizens. So there's always been a focus to immunize children uh, against influenza. Now, unlike influenza, children can get very ill but it looks like the frequency of illness in children with the coronavirus is less than flu 
certainly not as severe uh, at all on average, although there's occasional children that get severe illness. However, uh, because you cannot distinguish a common cold or flu or coronavirus, any symptoms should prompt children to stay at home. And if they do have symptoms, if they're tested and negative, we ask them to stay home until their symptoms have resolved plus a day. If they have coronavirus or they're not being tested, they should stay home for at least 10 days after symptom onset plus 24 hours of resolved fever and so on. That's important to help prevent transmission. So I'd say if you have in-person classes, I would be fairly strict about keeping anyone with upper respiratory symptoms at home with those provisos. And unfortunately, if you were to let uh, children at home who have clinical illness in, you will have, even with wearing masks, have increased potential for transmission in those settings. Okay, great. And our next learner has a couple of questions. First question is, what is the real information about the Regeneron cocktail? Is it really that close in trials to production and general use? Was the president just feeling better because of the steroids he was on? And also, is the Regeneron cocktail available for compassionate use? So the Regeneron cocktail are two monoclonal antibodies that are directed against the coronavirus. Uh, and there is a similar product made by Lilly that's just one monoclonal antibody. That uh, trial has just been placed on hold because of safety considerations about their clinical trial. Now, what we know about Regeneron is mainly from a press release where outpatients were uh, studied and those people that got the cocktail and didn't yet mount their own antibodies seemed to have an abbreviated illness compared to people that got the cocktail, but clearly their immune system was already in progress and trying to clear the virus and so on. So it does look like this kind of antibody strategy, if given very early, may be helpful in abbreviating illness. Now, the president, you could be argued, since he needed oxygen, was akin to someone that might be in the hospital. So we don't really have information about that antibody product used. Um, there has been a compassionate use. I have heard numbers of 10 or 11 people, uh, if we include the present, that have gotten the Regeneron cocktail on a compassionate use basis. Uh, and so some people feel that it is effective early in disease, similar to what we've seen from some studies uh, suggesting that convalescent plasma, if given early in illness before people are uh, very ill, may impact the ability of their viral infection to drive them to a mechanical ventilator or the intensive care unit. Some other arguments which I've heard, which I think are worth just citing, are that if, there, if these products, these monoclonal antibodies are used widely, perhaps the virus will mutate. And this is something that would happen probably less likely with convalescent plasma because everybody's immune systems tackle it slightly differently. You probably get a whole mix of different antibodies uh, as opposed to this uh, very defined target here. So, you know, we're waiting for additional trials. The Regeneron cocktail is part of Operation Warp Speed, which means that uh, the company has gotten federal funds to uh, produce the product so it could be used um, and it will be available if it gets an emergency use 
authorization or FDA approval. Okay, and our next question. What do we know about the cases of prolonged illness from COVID that are described as quote-unquote long haulers? Yeah, we don't know a lot yet, uh, to be honest. There's been so much focus on the acute infection, but uh, there's certainly growing interest now that we're uh, seven plus months into the pandemic. Some studies have cited that people uh, up to 90% might have some symptoms 30 to 60 days, and then a substantial percentage is even longer out. Certain infections always seem to have a post-infectious fatigue syndrome. Probably the most famous might be infectious mononucleosis. There's also Lyme disease, uh, Q fever in Australia, another virus called Ross Valley fever, where about 10% of people feel like their health is not restored six months or more afterwards. And perhaps the coronavirus falls into this category. There are other things, of course, to uh, uh, realize. People that have a critical illness in the ICU often have complications of ICU care, uh, critical illness, neuropathy, and so on. So anyone that's so ill as to be in the ICU, that could be more from the supportive care that's needed or the proning that's causing some uh, long-term problems that might be independent to the virus itself. So I. I think this is still being teased out. And the last aspect, of course, is people will tend to blame the coronavirus for any symptoms that occur after it. And that may or may not be true. We see this with a number of infections. Uh, from my experience with Lyme disease, if people had a tick bite, no matter what happens in the next year, uh, the tick might get blamed, whether or not it's actually causing the, the problem, just like we blame the last meal we ate for bad diarrhea if we went out to a restaurant, whereas the greater likelihood the food in our fridge might have uh, given us uh, some bad bacteria on deli meat or something of that nature. So uh, obviously lots of aspects. I think it is true this virus probably for some people accounts for issues that are wide ranging, I have no doubt. This is quite an immunologically interesting virus. So um, stay tuned on this one for sure. But it, I think it's gonna be a harder situation to tease out compared to acute infections. Okay, thank you. And this next question was asked by a couple of learners. What are the indications for dexamethasone use in COVID-19 patients? Are there any extenuating circumstances to these indications? Yeah, so a, a couple of issues that I think uh, come up. First, uh, dexamethasone really became adopted as a standard of care based on a trial called the recovery trial, which was a pragmatic trial with multiple arms, but one of them was dexamethasone performed in the United Kingdom, which also happened to have one of the highest mortality rates of COVID-19 in the world at nearly 40%. They were able to document that if anyone uh, was in the intensive care unit on a ventilator and so on, there is a substantial mortality benefit, less so if you only required oxygen. So it seemed like the more ill you were, the more benefit you got from the dexamethasone. Uh, there is also an indication that if you had mild disease and didn't need oxygen at all, that it might have been detrimental, a trend where people did a bit worse if they got dexamethasone. So if someone needs oxygen, the tendency has been to use dexamethasone. There's a little bit of controversy with um, pregnancy. And I would say that sometimes um, uh, women in their third trimester concerned if they got COVID 
I've seen uh, obstetricians want to use steroids, even if they're not on oxygen, to foster fetal lung maturation in case they have premature delivery. So obviously not something that's even very well studied there, but that's sort of a balancing issue and circumstance where even if you don't need oxygen, there may be an indication. There could be others, of course, that I'm not thinking of. Okay, and this is our last question. Is there evidence that eyeglasses are protective against infection? Yes, uh, a number of studies and in an earlier program, I had a, a citation of a meta-analysis that looked at the top three things that uh, protect people against uh, COVID-19. One is social distancing of at least one or two meters. The second is face masks, and the third were eyeglasses. And this really came from some early studies in China, which suggested people that wore glasses were less likely to acquire it. So these would be one of the reasons why healthcare workers and other people doing close-in work are wearing face shields and so on. So uh, for people that do have eyeglasses uh, and wear masks, that does offer a little bit of extra protection, even in day-to-day -day, uh, activities outside of your home. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for answering those questions. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for answering those questions. Looking forward to talking about testing with you next week. Yeah, thank you, Faith. They're uh, very uh, instructive questions and there's so much uh, that we need to yet learn about uh, this coronavirus and the impact on human health. And as always, I, I wish you the best to stay well and stay safe. Thank you for listening. 